Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, if you want to go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Good to see all of you and a very uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, We're continuing on in our series, Love in Translation. We've been asking this question, how have we been called to translate the love of God, the eternal, unchanging love of God in a way that's specific to the modern world? Um, And and even more than that, but that's specific to the people that we encounter in our lives daily. And we've been kind of, you know, looking at redeeming the idea of evangelism for many of us, redeeming the idea of mission. Um, But it's all in in the service of us becoming a community that's more outwardly focused and other-centered. Um, that we recognize that we even began the series by talking about when Jesus first sends his disciples out in Matthew 10, and it's the first time they're called apostles, and there's kind of a reflection for our spiritual journeys as well. There's a certain amount of time in following Jesus where it is about us receiving and learning from him, learning how to see what he sees, learning how to hear what he says, but there comes a time uh, for all of us where we have to move from a posture of receiving as disciples uh, to becoming more apostolic. that we have something to give, we have something to offer. And if we only ever see ourselves in that position as disciples, that our only thing is about receiving from God, we begin to wonder why we stagnate in our faith. Um, Because we're we're a cesspool, We're, we're, we're limited in our capacity to receive from God if we don't allow it to flow through us. And so the whole process of learning how to demonstrate God's love through our stories and our personalities, through our gifts, through our sensitivity to the people that we walk life with daily, means that we begin to release the love of God in very specific and tangible ways, and that actually reinforces our ability to receive God's love. Uh, And and the vessel of who we are, the the capacity we have to hold his love, begins to expand and increase as we encounter uh, and and, and offer God's love to the rest of the world. And I'm, gosh, I feel like I say this at least every other Sunday. I'm very excited for what the Lord has for us today. Um, But this one has been on my heart for a long time. Uh, It's something that um, I'm uh, gaining more and more passion in my life uh, personally for, and I, I feel like I'm finally at a point uh, to be able to talk about it. And so my question for us today is, what if God has specific people cross your path daily because you might have something to offer them? What if, what if you're just going about your daily life, work, rest, play, family, friend, strangers, and God as actually nudging people into your path because he knows that you're the person that has something to offer them? So today we're going to be talking about something that's called divine appointments, uh, and it's classic sermon of mine. It's going to have lots of biblical background and history and nuance, and we're going to tell some stories, and, and hopefully each of us will be uh, inspired and empowered to realize this is something we can step into in our own lives. Um, so let's pray, and um, we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you are with us, you are for us, you are not uh, against us. Lord, I thank you for that. Um, the sweet times of worship, that you do so much within us to reinforce uh, who you are, and secondly, who uh, you're crafting us to be uh, when we ascribe worth to you, when we come together and we sing and we pray and we lay hands on one another. Um, 
All of these little moments, Lord, are you crafting us to be the people that you've called us to be. So as we continue on, Lord, by diving into your word, uh, I pray that you would keep each one of us open and sensitive and tender, um, that we would know when you're speaking to each one of us, Lord. Part of the reason that we're here is that we're learning to train our ears uh, to know what your voice sounds like above all of the other voices in our heads. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, uh, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at, I think, one of the most fascinating passages in the book of Acts. You know, Acts is really uh, this almost continuation on of the story of Jesus, but instead of seeing Jesus in the flesh ministering and demonstrating the kingdom, it kind of transfers over to the spirit of Jesus demonstrated through uh, those early disciples, through the early church. And really, you can almost read Acts as uh, these, these men and women going out into the known world and, and really experimenting, really not knowing what exactly it means to live according to the Spirit. This was unprecedented. This had never happened within the people of God. And what we find throughout the story of Acts are, are certain uh, players, um, certain apostles who are put in a scenario where they have to kind of question, well, what is God's heart really here? Because there's some sort of boundary um, that I'm being asked to cross, a cultural boundary or, or whatever it might be. And this is one of the fantastic stories that, it, that we see really demonstrates this beautifully. This is going to be in Acts chapter 8, and it's a story of Philip and the eunuch. So I'm going to read the story um, in just a moment. Um, but I really want you to hear about this. You know, several weeks ago, we celebrated Pentecost, which is Acts chapter 2. And this is the place where that early church received the Holy Spirit. And they began to preach uh, in Jerusalem, but they were preaching to all Jews. Uh, Jews from Israel, Jews from all over the known world had come together uh, to worship for a festival. And one of the things that I said there, I think is so important for us to have as a lens as we read this story. Um, the story of Jesus is both universal enough and personal enough to save everyone. The story of Jesus is both universal enough and that it reaches all tribes and nations and tongues, but it's also personal enough that none of you are exempt. None of you are too far gone. None of you are too weird or whatever it might be to be able to be incorporated into the story of Jesus. And I think one of the fascinating things to me of reading the book of Acts is seeing that the early church that was almost exclusively Jewish at the beginning had to keep contending with that. How, how big is the story of God really? And they continue to kind of wrestle through this as they begin to incorporate Gentiles and people from all over the known world and they go, oh, them too? Like even they get to be part of this? Are you sure, Yahweh? Are you sure you've got this right? And God continues to, um, to break them out of their prejudices and understanding uh, of who the story of God is for. And I think that's so appropriate for us today. That as we encounter people in, a, in the world as it is today, especially because, you know, our, our society is no longer, you know, this monolithic monoculture that we all kind of look the same and talk the same. There's incredible diversity in our modern world that we're always bumping into people in our daily lives and going, does it, does it still apply for them? Is the story of Jesus still true for these people? And I think this story uh, illustrates that so beautifully. So this is Acts chapter 8, beginning in the 26th verse. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. 
This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So a little bit of the backstory. We have kind of two main players here. First of all, we have Philip, and Philip was a young man from Jerusalem. And if you recall earlier in the story, there's this moment in the church in Jerusalem where they recognize um, that the Gentile widows that had been incorporated into the family of God were kind of being overlooked in favor of all the Jewish widows. And so the leaders, uh, Peter and James and the others, the leaders of that church said, "We, we, we can't do this. We can't have this disparity within our community. So they kind of looked around for for young men that would be able to stand in the position of caring specifically for this group of people. One of them that they nominated was Stephen, who becomes the first martyr. And another was this young man, Philip. And so Philip begins his job essentially as a deacon in the early church, specifically uh, about care for widows and, and orphans. But there becomes a point in Philip's story where he has to move beyond just what the job is within the church in Jerusalem, and he becomes more of an evangelist. The Lord continues uh, to send him out into new territory. And so um, God asks him to go out to this road Uh, and to encounter there um, this man who is a eunuch. He's a treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia, um, and he's a eunuch. Can anybody tell me what a eunuch is? What? We can say it. It's biblical. Anyone? Nobody? He's castrated. Okay, right. I assume we all know what that means. I've probably all been in a dairy farm at some point. Just kidding. So there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's really two major things about this man that are very different probably than anything that Philip has encountered. Um, first of all, that, that he's a eunuch. He has been castrated in the service probably of the royal family of Ethiopia. Um, that was very common in the, in the kind of known world at that time, Middle East, North Africa, etc. that your, uh, your highest servants were actually castrated. It was a symbol of kind of um, their subservience to the royal family or whatever it might be. And the second thing is he's actually from North Africa. So this is the first black person that we encounter in the story of Jesus. And so you can imagine Philip's kind of encountering this person and he's probably, he's used to like, you know, Jewish, Greek widows and now meets this black eunuch, and he's like, uh, okay, let's see how this goes. And so this eunuch, um, he's, he's traveling back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem, and this is really interesting because it probably tells us a couple things about him. It means he's, he's already aware of the story of God. He's aware of uh, Yahweh, that the, the Jewish religion claims this is the one true God. And it's interesting that in the Middle East, in that era, um, a lot of non-Jews were attracted to Judaism because it, it, it offered this dramatically different vision of what God was like in contrast to all of the other gods. You had the Mesopotamian gods, you had these North African gods, and, and in most cultures, the gods are mostly like human beings just with superpowers. 
But Yahweh has this dramatically different offering of what God is really like. And so we can assume there's something for this eunuch that attracts him to Judaism. But because of the, the Jewish law, the Torah, this man being a eunuch means that he wasn't really allowed to convert to Judaism. So he's, he's already on the outside of this religion that he greatly admires. But there's something there that still draws him into the story. And so we can imagine that this man has traveled to Jerusalem to, to go to the temple to worship Yahweh, but he's doing it inherently as an outsider. And so Philip encounters him on the road, and he kind of approaches the chariot. He says, do you know what I'm reading? And he says, you know, how can I understand this if no one will tell me exactly what it's saying? And the amazing thing is that he's reading from the prophet Isaiah in, verse, uh, in chapter 53. And I just want to read a couple verses from that that weren't mentioned um, in this passage from Acts. This is kind of how it begins. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is a passage that we know as the suffering servant. And what's happening in this chapter is that, that Isaiah is giving the people this vision of what God's Messiah is going to look like, the, the ambassador of God, the man who's going to come along and do for Israel what Israel could not do for herself. And it's this kind of counterintuitive narrative. You remember that a lot of times, especially in Jesus' day, um, the Jews were looking for some sort of conquering leader, some warrior king that was going to come in and he was going to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish the state of Israel and reinforce we're the ones that are strong and we're on the inside and God is on our side and, and everybody better back up. And then there's this very strange passage that seems counterintuitive to that idea of the warrior king, that, that God's ambassador... God's chosen and anointed one is actually going to come in, and he's going to suffer somehow. But through that suffering is going to deliver Israel from, uh, from captivity. But it continues on. In Isaiah 53, we're talking about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 54, God reestablishes his covenant with Israel, and he, calls, he speaks of Israel as this woman this, who's been uh, you know, kind of sent out into exile, and it's about bringing back the family and making a whole new promise with her. But then it continues on. In Isaiah 55, he talks about not just am I making a new covenant with my own people, with my family, with Israel, but this is actually about resurrection of all of creation, what I'm doing through the Messiah through the suffering servant isn't just for a people group, it's not just for the human species, but it's actually me bringing back together the entire universe, redeeming it and restoring it and reestablishing that my kingdom is not uh, bound by uh, borders and ethnicities, but it's actually for all of creation itself. And then there's this really powerful moment in Isaiah 56 where he's kind of sealing the deal and you can imagine that perhaps this is why God has the eunuch reading this passage. In Isaiah 56 verses four and five, it says this, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. How did that passage meet this man's story? I hope you feel the tenderness and the sensitivity of the story of God. 
That this whole passage, Isaiah 56, just before this, it's talking about how foreigners are going to be incorporated into the family of God. And then it goes so specific to say, even eunuchs, those who have been robbed of the ability to have children, who seem like because of the old covenant, they're discounted from my presence, they cannot be part of my family. The new thing that I'm doing in the Messiah actually addresses them as well and brings them into my story, brings them into my family. And so the eunuch reading this can understand, I actually have a place. I have a family. I have a spot at the table of God. And I think when it's, you know, just very briefly, it says Philip told him the good news about Jesus. I'm sure he's expounding upon all four of these chapters of Isaiah and saying, like, this is how big and beautiful the story of God is as it's revealed through Jesus, that you're not discounted anymore. You're not exempt from what God's doing. He's figured out a way to bring you back, to redeem you, to rescue you. And so as they're traveling down the road talking about this, um, you know, the, the eunuch sees a river and he says, well, why don't I just get baptized right now? And so Philip baptizes this man and then sends him on his way. And there's a legend about this Ethiopian eunuch that he returns home to North Africa, and he becomes the first evangelist there in Northeast Africa. And that he begins to tell the good news of Jesus and what God has done for him, and he becomes the father of what we call now the Coptic Church. Many of you know that I'm a big fan of the Copts, that they are uh, perhaps the most authentic vision we have of what the early church looked like. And isn't it the beautiful redemption of God that this man who could not have children becomes the father of an entire branch of the Christian religion? That what he does, what he, and when receiving the good news of Jesus and recognizing that he is not exempt, he is not rejected, he is not despised, he now becomes the father of an entire movement that exists today in North Africa and elsewhere. This is the poetic redemption of the story of God. But I think what I want to really draw out of this story is the attitude of Philip in meeting this, this surprising encounter, something that he could not possibly have imagined for himself. Philip had to make himself available. He just had to make himself open and available that, that God, he says, just go, just go to this road. And Philip says, okay. And he says, now just go over to that chariot. And he says, okay, I don't, this, all right, this seems what, what the Lord's asking of me. And God doesn't give him a plan. God doesn't give him a program. God doesn't give him steps. God doesn't give him a cube. God just says, go and be available and see what I'm going to do. Because there was a point in Philip's story where he was open-minded and open-hearted enough to believe that wherever he's led, that God is going to do something amazing, that God is going to surprise him by how he uses him to speak into the lives of people which on the surface he seems to have no affinity for. And I think this is what I want to really say about divine appointments. Divine appointments are an opportunity for us to see what we really believe about God and his desire for his children. I've spoke often about how I believe faith is actually where we take what we say that we believe and how we live our lives. And those two things gradually over time are integrated. That it's only when we step out in faith and we begin to live it out, we begin to act, we begin to test it, that we see if what we really believe is true. Because if we only believe it in our minds and our hearts, but we put it to no action, what good is it? 
So divine appointments are an opportunity for us to work out our beliefs about who God is in real time, partnering with God in the moment to see what he wants to say through us, to do what he wants to do through us. And so I kind of want to give you three observations and three stories from my own life about divine appointments. And by no means does this mean that I am an expert. This is me stumbling through life just as much as the rest of you. But I think even when we can share stories of what God is doing in real time through us, it actually animates all of us and inspires all of us that maybe we too uh, can practice the same. So the first is this, being obedient to where God sends us and what he has to say leads us to some surprising results. We see this all through scripture, beginning with Abraham, that God just says, go where I'll show you. Just go, and I'll, I'll show you when you get there. And I think that's such a revolutionary uh, mentality. We see with Philip, just go. I'm not going to give you the plan. I'm not going to give you the description of what to expect. Just go and be available. That this is really the, the exercise of faith. Because I think when we just go and we're available, we're willing to be surprised. When we have a plan, when we have a methodology so often that it eliminates the possibility of us being surprised because we've already put into a box what it is that God's about to do. So as I was talking about earlier, when Jesus first sends the disciples out as apostles and he's giving them these instructions in verse 19 of chapter 10, he says, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes our formulas and our answers actually get in the way of our sensitivity. You can testify on that one if you want. Not always, some of you free birds, I'm not saying always throw out plans, but I'm saying very often, the plans and the programs and the prescriptions that we have actually make us lose sensitivity to the people that we're talking to. And I will preach, and I'm preaching it right now. <laughs> but when we fill our heads with these, these ideas of it's going to go like this, and they're going to ask this, and I'm going to do this, we, the person in front of us no longer becomes a person with a story, with joys, pains, passions, desires. They become a project. They become, uh, you know, a, a, a notch that we're trying to get in our belt of how many souls we've been able to save. And a lot of times when we lose that sensitivity to the person in front of us, the things we're saying might be accurate, but they're not true. You might be making accurate statements about God, about Jesus, about salvation, but it's not true because there's no sensitivity Time and again in scripture, we saw this with Jesus, that he had this, his heart was broken open by the people he was encountering. And it was that heart of compassion that drew him into the midst of their stories. It wasn't him going out into the world and saying, okay, I'm gonna save five souls today and expel 10 demons and then we're just gonna call it a day. It was him walking the world sensitively and tenderly. You know, you wonder what was Philip thinking about this assignment that the Holy Spirit was sending him on? that he wasn't given this plan. He's just being told, go out and be available and obedient. Be sensitive, be spirit aware. And when the time comes, you're going to know what to say. It's not about rehearsing it. It's not about having the right words. It's about being sensitive to the spirit in the moment. 
And I think this is really important just to see in this, and this is kind of the caveat for it. Philip, he did the work beforehand. And many of you know that when I've given you counsel and you're kind of wrestling through things in your own life, I'm going to ask you, are you doing the work? Are you taking into yourself the discipline of knowing the voice of God? of carving out time in your busy schedule to spend time with your father, to know what he sounds like, to know what he looks like. Because until you and I do the work in privacy within the safety of Christian community, when we go out into the big world, there are so many other competing voices. It's going to be very hard for us to know what he's saying, to know what he's doing, to know what he's inviting us to. And that's where we find ourselves numb or overwhelmed. But when we do the work to know what God sounds like and we enter into those new spaces, that's where it really begins to matter. And the older that I get, the more that I realize that this is actually how God works. Through a conversation with a friend last week, I, I posted something online that, that said something, you know, oftentimes I think the plans and the programs that we establish with God, the plan, that's still more about our control than it is about intimacy with God. We say, okay, Lord, this is, this is what it's going to look like. Here's my five-year plan, and we're going to make a bargain about this. I made a bargain with God one time, haha, when I was like 22. And I'm like, God, if I get to be a professional musician, then you can have all the rest. You can have my next 30 years. And I got to do it for six months. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, okay. And so often we're making these plans about our lives and we're kind of, we're saying that we're doing it because we're like making a deal with God, but usually it's still more about our control. And the older I get, the more I realize God's priority is that we walk with him day by day and that we find ourselves in the promised land by surprise. Not because we're coming to him and going, okay, what's it gonna look like? What are the dimensions? What can I expect? What are the plans that I need to be working on today to do that? He's like, no, just get to know me today. Walk with me daily, and you're going to be surprised and delighted by where you end up. Several months ago, um, you know, every Friday I go down to St. Luke's Cathedral for communion, and I was, we were in this moment of, of confessing sin, and I, and I felt this tremendous sense of remorse and regret over something that had happened several years ago. And I'm kind of sitting there like, oh, Lord, this, just, this feels really strange. I thought we've kind of worked through this, that you've forgiven me and I've received your forgiveness, and, and I don't know why I'm still feeling this sense of remorse. And so I was dutiful and I gave my confession and then I went off to get my hair cut um, over here on Mills, and I'm sitting down, and all right, come on, you know, like, you go pray, you go get a haircut, it's all the same. Part of my job is to look really good on behalf of Jesus, that's what I'm saying. Just kidding. So I go, and I'm, I'm getting a haircut from this, this young man, and we start talking, and he, of course he asks what I do, and I say, I'm a pastor in town, and he begins to tell me his whole story that, you know, he grew up in a, in a kind of Latin American Catholic culture, and he kind of walked away for a long time, and he kind of felt like the Lord was bringing him back, and he'd be going to all these non-denominational churches, and he was asking me about how I feel about all these different celebrity pastors, and I'm like, okay, well, we can talk about that, and we, we talked about Kanye and hip-hop and all this stuff, and then we're kind of wrapping up, and he says, can I ask you something? I said, yes, of course. He said, do you ever feel remorse and regret? I was like, uh, yeah, like two hours ago. <laughs> and he goes, and so he starts to tell me this story about this thing that he had been struggling with all night. And, and the scenario that he was describing that he's walking through right now was the same thing that I had walked through several years prior. And I'm learning to get to this point to recognize that sometimes what I feel isn't actually 
about me. It's actually God establishing something within my own story that's for other people. And a lot of times I make that mistake. I'll feel shame or regret or whatever, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've done something wrong. God's like, slow down, look around. Am I actually giving you a heart of compassion for somebody else's story? And so I realized that when I was feeling remorse and confession, it was actually anticipating meeting this guy, and he began to tell me this story. He said, I was literally walking to work today saying, God, I need you to deliver me from this feeling, and whatever the next step is, I need you to give it to me today. And I was his first customer that day. And so we began to talk about it, and I was saying, one of the things that I'm still working on is learning that I have, to res- I have to forgive myself in the same spirit that Jesus has already forgiven me. And I think he's actually a lot kinder to us than we are to ourselves. And we began to talk about remorse and regret, and I was able to kind of give him some path forward. A lot of people are way more interested in talking about God than we think. I think for many of us, especially that grew up in Christianity in the 90s, we were preconditioned that everybody's going to be hostile, that everybody's going to hate you for being a Christian, and they hate God, and they hate Jesus, and I just find that that is not very true. There are people that are like that, but so many people are itching to talk about God, to talk about spirituality, maybe to talk about Jesus, to talk about these other things, and they're waiting for someone to come alongside of them and to name that and to walk through that, to authenticate the deepest sentiments they have within themselves. Something I've heard from several pastors that I absolutely love is when they do meet somebody that says, oh, I don't believe in God, they say, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Because I'm willing to bet the God you don't believe in is the God that I don't believe in either, so high five. And it's the perfect place to begin to describe the God that we know as revealed in Jesus. But again, this is where it's so important that we actually know what we're talking about, that we know what God is really like. Because the God that people are, if they are rejecting God, that they're often is like, oh, I couldn't, you know, this patristic, white-bearded, like, man in the sky. And I'm like, cool, that's not my God either. You know, I don't believe in the God that would blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yep, that's right. That's absolutely right. Let me tell you about Jesus and show you that this is what God has always looked like. We didn't always know this, but now we do. We've got to know our stuff. We've got to do the work. We've got to spend time with him to know what he's really like. And that brings me to my second point. We can ask for more opportunity, but we have to be ready to act. Daniel and I were talking about this earlier this week, that a lot of times when we pray for courage, we pray for patience. We pray for these qualities, these attributes. It's not that God gives us those things directly, but he gives us opportunities to exercise courage. He gives us opportunities to exercise patience. But the deeper thing that God is really offering us in that is his own very presence, that he's asking us, will you abide in me from moment to moment? In busyness and in rest, in moments of comfortability, in moments of great risk, can you learn to abide with me in that? And when we shift our priorities from needing to have all of these kind of qualities of a good Christian to spending time with Jesus, abiding with him, learning to walk with him every day of our lives, then our stories become more about how God is transforming us than it is about being able to accurately describe stuff, about making a good argument. We find this in 1 Peter. Peter says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So there's, that's your intimacy bit. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. 
but do this with gentleness and respect. And how many of us have thought that means you need to know the Bible, you need to know the answers to every question that people are gonna come up with, you need to go through all of your apologetic classes, you need to be able to explain all of these super complex things. Let me tell you something. If there is a piece of theology that we have been arguing about for 2,000 years, the pressure's off, guys, <laughs> okay? If it's about like, well, what do we do with the violence of the God in the Old Testament? Guess what? We're still having that conversation. It's been 2,000 years. You know what I mean? Like all of these giants of the faith going before us, they didn't agree. And I think that gives us a little bit of a wiggle room to go, we don't have to know all of the answers. We don't have to have all the right theological answers. And a lot of times when we read this portion of Peter and it says, always be prepared to give an answer, we think it means always be an apologetic genius, always be able to give the right Bible verse or whatever. But what I think what he's actually saying is, what can you tell out of your story? What can you tell out of your lived-in experience of Jesus as you are being transformed, as you are spending time with him, as he is rescuing and redeeming you? What can you tell out of that place that might offer hope to somebody else? And I love theology. We need to know what we're talking about. But we need to experience God and be able to tell that story. No one has ever come to Jesus because they lost an argument. People come to Jesus because they've been offered an encounter of him through his people. And that is what we're being drawn into. It's less about understanding doctrine than it is about demonstrating the love of God in your journey. A couple years ago, I had tonsillitis. Thanks, Spirit Airlines. And I came, I was going... Does anybody here work for Spirit? I'm sorry. Uh, we'll blank that out in the podcast. We'll go, thanks, airlines. Uh, I was going up to D.C. to visit my family to go to this prayer gathering. I was laid out for three days. I lost 12 pounds, and I had all this terrible. I came back, uh, you know, and just in general, they just kind of like are like, I, we don't know what's wrong with you. Let's give you antibiotics and see if that works. And you're like... Cool. So I was going to go get my antibiotics uh, at Publix, and you know I'm not still not feeling great. I'm slowly getting better, and I walk up to the counter and I give her my thing through hazy eyes, and I get it. And I recognize that the cashier uh, at the you know the the the, um, the Publix pharmacy, she's kind of like sniffling and she's having a hard time. And so I was like, I just want to go home and I want to take these antibiotics and kill everything in my system and then just sleep. I was like okay, this is an opportunity, because this isn't, she's not a cashier, she's a human being. So I asked her how she's feeling, she's saying I'm kind of struggling through the day, and I said, is it okay if I pray for you? I just really want to pray for you. She goes, oh, yes, please, that would be amazing. So just very quickly in the cashier, I just laid hands on her, and I just prayed over her for full and complete healing, and I just told her that Jesus loved her, and I opened my eyes, and it's just tears streaming down her face because I think that's what she needed in that moment. I think it was so easy for me just to see this woman as a function in my life or to say, well, I'm off the clock right now. You know, I'm not, I'm not in that mode. But be, even as uh, Nicole was talking about last week, being willing to be interrupted and to see people as people and to be able to offer something even out of my own sickness that she might need. And that brings me to my third point. As our God-given love for people grows, our expectations for what God can do through us will too. As our love, as we are broken open, as Jesus was broken open, our expectations of what God is capable of doing through us 
is, is the same. I think f- f- reorienting to faithfulness challenges us to let go of our results-based faith. When we lose sensitivity, we're looking for results. We walk the program, we said the right words, and then we just see something doesn't happen in the moment. And we begin to create terrible, terrible theology about faith. Who didn't have enough faith? Who didn't this and who didn't that? And maybe they blah, 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 blah. And we start to create all these things that are simply not part of the story. And it ruins what God is trying to do in the moment. I remember several years ago reading an interview with Reinhard Bonnke. He's an evangelist. He lives here now. He's from Germany and he did all this work in Africa. And he, you know, he's like in his 70s and he does these revivals and there's a lot of healings at his revivals. And someone asked him, why is it that when you pray for some people, they're healed and when you pray for others, they don't? And he didn't come up with some silly theology that tried to iron out all the wrinkles and say, well, it was obviously this or blah, blah, blah. He said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why it is that I pray for some people and they're healed and for some people and they're not. I just know that I'm called to be faithful, to to pray, and I'm going to leave the results to God. And I think that's actually the tremendous maturity when we can reorient to being faithful to what God is doing and then leave the results up to him. But for us, when we reorient to faithfulness, to compassion, it has to start with us being able to notice people. When was the last time that you saw people beyond their utilitarian function in your life? When they were more than just a cashier or a taxi driver? When they were more than just a suit walking down the street? Whatever it might be, are you open and available? is love actually the engine of how you choose to walk the world? Because I think we have to start there. Several years ago, I was still learning how to do this, learning how to specifically prophesy over strangers, which is very, very tricky. And I was at a bar with some friends, drinking chocolate milk, of course. (laughs) And it's like, you know, friends and friends of friends, uh, and we're all kind of at this bar, and I, and I turned and I looked and there was this table of guys and I just felt like the Lord started to give me some specific words for them. I just had this inclination, I wasn't quite sure. And so I walk up to this one guy and I'm like, this, this is going to be weird. And I'm gonna apologize in advance, but I just, I saw you and you know, I just really felt like Jesus wanted to say this to you. And I kind of gave him this vision and he kind of was like, okay, cool, thanks man. And that was about it. Uh, turns out that guy was the guitar player in Saves the Day, uh, which is this really great emo band from back in the day. And he was sitting with, like, you know, Nashville, you're like friends with friends, and so I like have connections with these guys. So I'd see him around, and it was just like super awkward. Um, but it was, it was that like stepping out of what's comfortable for me and approaching a stranger and kind of offering him this vision, trying to be sensitive, trying to be careful, but still choosing to step out and to see what that looks like. And that's not where you start. You know, I've had to continue to walk up to that place because I want to be more motivated by faithfulness than this expectation of results. And so when we're more motivated by compassion, our expectation of what God can do through us begins to increase. So I want to challenge all of us. What does it look like for us to believe that God has divine appointments, that God has people walk into our path almost daily because there's something that you carry not even to the same degree of what the person next to you does, but that you actually carry that you could offer them. And I think these are kind of three simple principles. Number one, be prayerful in preparation. Begin your day 
by asking the Lord to keep your heart tender and open, to be willing to be surprised and delighted by who he brings into your path. Second, be open-handed and available. Walk the world with sensitivity and tenderness. Enter into spaces and to say, God, what are you doing here? What are you saying? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to speak? Be open and available rather than closed off and programmatic. And finally, be faithful and leave the results to God. It's not your job to get something to the finish line. It's not your job to put notches in your belt of how many souls you've saved or how many demons you've expelled or how many people you've healed. It's your job just to be faithful to what God's doing. And I think actually he's going to train you out of a results-based faith. And you're gonna fall more in love with him and then you're actually going to see things happen. I think my final point would be this, that we can, we can walk the world assuming that every interaction is going to cost us and we can live out of that self-preservational uh, place. We can live out of our ego and say, oh, I'm not ready yet, oh, this is gonna cost me, oh, I, I'm going to be inconvenienced. And I just wanna to say to you, you are. You're gonna be inconvenienced when you walk according to the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It is going to cost you. And a lot of you, it, you you're always weighing out the cost, the, you know, the, the, the return on investment when it comes to your interactions with other people. It's going to cost you. So just go ahead and put that aside because everything in life costs you. You know, everything. But what if it's these kind of steps of faith and divine appointments that do cost you that actually give you more life. That you're able to recognize the heart of the Father in ways that you have never experienced before because you are willing to step out in faith and to see if what you believe about Him is actually true. So let's stand. We're gonna worship. Father, we thank you for the story of Philip. We thank you for the story of this Ethiopian eunuch that these two men are this incredible, incredible demonstration of what happens when we are open and available to you, to go where you lead us, to speak what you're saying, to do what you want us to do. Lord, we want to be those kinds of people. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be open and available to whatever you're doing. And so, Father, in this time of worship, whatever you need to do within each one of us to shift things, to break things open, to realign things so that we can have that kind of expectancy that's motivated by compassion, we give you permission to do that. Lord, you are not coercive. You're not forceful. You're gentle and you're tender and you're sensitive. And that's what we love about you. Teach us how to respond to that. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.